This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 4, The Trouble with Geniuses, Part 2. Section 1. Chris Langan's mother was from San Francisco and was estranged from her family. She had four sons, each with a different father. Chris was the eldest, and his father disappeared before Chris was born. He was said to have died in Mexico. His mother's second husband was murdered, and the third committed suicide. The fourth was a failed journalist named Jack Langan. Chris Langan says, quote, To this day, I haven't met anybody who was as poor when they were kids as our family was. We didn't have a pair of matching socks. Our shoes had, had holes in them. Our pants had holes in them, too. We only had one set of clothes. I remember my brothers and I going into the bathroom and using the bathtub to wash our only set of clothes, and we were bare-ass naked when we were doing so because we didn't have anything else to wear, end quote. Jack Lincoln would go on drinking sprees and disappear. He would lock the kitchen cabinet so the boys couldn't get to the food. He used a bullwhip to keep the boys in line. He would get jobs and then lose them, moving the family on to the next town. One summer, the family lived on an Indian reservation in a teepee, subsisting on government surplus peanut butter and cornmeal. For a time, they lived in Virginia City, Nevada. Mark Langan says, quote, There was only one law officer in town, and when the Hells Angels came to town, he would crouch down in the back of his office. There was a bar there, I'll always remember, and it was called the Bucket of Blood Saloon, end quote. When the boys were in grade school, the family moved to Bozeman, Montana. One of Chris's brothers spent time in a foster home, and another was sent to reform school. His, Chris's brother Jeff says, quote, I don't think the school ever understood just how gifted Christopher was. He sure as hell didn't play it up. This was Bozeman. It wasn't like it is today. It was a small hick town when we were growing up. We weren't treated well there. They just decided that my family was a bunch of deadbeats. To stick up for himself and his brothers, Chris started to lift weights. One day, when Chris was 14, Jack Langan got rough with the boys, as he sometimes did, and Chris knocked him out cold. Jack left, never to return. Upon graduation from high school, Chris was offered two full scholarships, one to Reed College in Oregon and the other to the University of Chicago. He chose Reed. Sidebar, interesting, I think that's where Steve Jobs went. All right, Chris recalls, quote, It was a huge mistake. I had a real case of culture shock. I was a crew-cut kid who had been working as a ranch hand in the summers in Montana. And there I was with a whole bunch of long-haired city kids, most of them from New York. These kids had a whole different style than I was used to. I couldn't get a word in edgewise at class. They were very inquisitive, asking questions all the time. I was crammed into a dorm room. There were four of us, and the other three guys had a whole different lifestyle. They were smoking pot. They would bring their girlfriends into the room. I had never smoked before, so I basically took to hiding in the library. He continues, Then I lost my scholarship. My mother was supposed to fill out a parent's financial statement for the renewal, but she neglected to do so. She was confused by the requirements or whatever. At some point, it came to my attention that my scholarship had not been renewed, so I went to the office to ask why, and they told me, well, no one sent us the financial statement, and we allocated all the scholarship money, and it's all gone, so I'm afraid that you don't have a scholarship here anymore. That was the style of the place. They simply didn't care. 
They didn't give a shit about their students. There was no counseling, no mentoring, nothing. End quote. Chris left Reed before the final exams, leaving him with a row of Fs on his transcript. In the first semester, he had earned A's. He went back to Bozeman and worked in construction and as a forest services firefighter for a year and a half. Then he enrolled at Montana State University. Quote, I was taking math and philosophy classes, he recalls, and then in the winter quarter, I was living 13 miles out of town, out on Beach Hill Road, and the transmission fell out of my car. My brothers had used it when I was gone that summer. They were working for the railroad and had driven it on the railroad tracks. I didn't have the money to repair it. So I went to my advisor and the dean in sequence and said, I have a problem. The transmission fell out of my car, and you have me in a 7.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. class. If you could please just transfer me to the afternoon sections, I would appreciate it because of the car problem. There was a neighbor who was a rancher who was going to take me in at 11 o'clock. My advisor was this cowboy-looking guy with a handlebar mustache dressed in a tweed jacket. He said, Well, son, after looking at your transcript at Reed College, I can see that you have yet to learn that everyone has to make sacrifices to get an education. Request denied. And then I went to the dean and got the same treatment. End quote. His voice grew tight. He was describing things that had happened more than 30 years ago, but the memory still made him angry. Quote, at that point, I realized here I was knocking myself out to make the money to make my way back to school. And it's in the middle of Montana in winter. I'm willing to hitchhike into town every day, do whatever I had to do just to get into school and back. And they are unwilling to do anything for me. So bananas. And that was the point I decided I could do without the higher education system. Even if I couldn't do without it, it was sufficiently repugnant to me that I wouldn't do it anymore. So I dropped out of college. Simple as that. End quote. Chris Langan's experiences at Reed and Montana State represented a turning point in his life. As a child, he had dreamt of becoming an academic. He should have gotten a Ph.D. Universities are institutions structured, in large part, for, for people with his kind of deep intellectual interests and curiosity. His brother Mark says, quote, Once he got into the university environment, I thought he would prosper. I really did. I thought he would somehow find a niche. It made absolutely no sense to me when he left that. End quote. Without a degree, Langan floundered. He worked in construction. One frigid winter, he worked on a clam boat on Long Island. He took factory jobs in minor civil service positions and eventually became a bouncer in a bar on Long Island which was his principal occupation for mo most of his adult years. Th through it all, he continued to read deeply in philosophy, mathematics, and physics as he worked on a sprawling treatise he called the CTMU, the Cognitive Theoretic Model of the Universe. But without academic credentials, he despairs of ever getting published in a scholarly journal. Quote, I am a guy who has a year and a half of college he says with a shrug, and at some point this will come to the attention of, of the editor as he is going to take the paper and send it off to the referees, and those referees are going to try and look me up, and they are not going to find me. They are going to say, this guy has a year and a half of college. How can he know what he's talking about? End quote. It is, it is a heartbreaking story. At one point I asked Lengen, hypothetically, whether he would take a job at, say, Harvard University were it offered to him. He replies, quote, well, that's a difficult question. 
Obviously, as a, as a full professor at Harvard, I would count. My ideas would have weight, and I could use my position, my affiliation at Harvard, to promote my ideas. An institution like that is a great source of intellectual energy, and if I were at a place like that, I could absorb the vibration in the air. End quote. It was suddenly clear how lonely his life has been. He, here he was, a man with an insatiable appetite for learning, forced for most of his adult life to live in intellectual isolation. Quote, I even noticed that kind of intellectual energy in the year and a half I was in college, he said wistfully. Ideas in the air are, ideas are in the air constantly. It's a stimulating place to be. He went on, on the other hand, Harvard is basically a glorified corporation, operating with a profit incentive. That's what makes it tick. It has an endowment in the billions of dollars. The people running it are not necessarily searching for truth and knowledge. They want to be big shots, and when you accept a paycheck from those people, it is going to come down to what you want to do and what you feel is right, versus what the man says you can do to receive another paycheck. When you are there, they have a thumb right on you. They are out to make sure that you don't step out of line. End quote. Section 2. What does the story of Chris Langan tell us? His explanations, as heartbreaking as they are, are also a little strange. His mother forgets to sign his financial aid form and, just like that, no scholarship. He tries to move from a morning to an afternoon class, something students do every day, and gets stopped cold. And why were Langan's teachers at Reed and Montana State so indifferent to his plight? Teachers typically delight in the minds as brilliant as his. Langan talks about dealing with Reed and Montana State as if they were some kind of vast and unyielding government bureaucracy. But colleges, particularly small liberal arts colleges like Reed, tend not to be rigid bureaucracies. Making allowances in the name of helping someone stay in school is what professors do all the time. Even in his discussion of Harvard, it's as if Langan has no conception of the culture and particulars of the institution he's talking about. For example, quote, he said, when you accept a paycheck from these people, it is going to come down to what you want to do and what you feel is right versus what the man says you can do to receive another paycheck, end quote. What? One of the main reasons college professors accept a lower paycheck than they could get in private industry is that university life gives them the freedom to do what they want to do and what they feel is right. Langan has Harvard backwards. When Langan told me his life story, I couldn't help thinking about the life of Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist who famously headed the American effort to develop the nuclear bomb during World War II. Oppenheimer, by all accounts, was a child with a mind very much like Chris Langan's. His parents considered him a genius. One of his teachers recalled that he received every new idea as perfectly beautiful. He was doing lab experiments by the third grade and studying physics and chemistry by the fifth. When he was nine, he once told me of his cousins, ask me a question in Latin and I will answer you in Greek. Oppenheimer went to Harvard and then on to Cambridge University to pursue a doctorate in physics. There, Oppenheimer, who struggled with depression his entire life, grew despondent. His gift was for theoretical physics, and his tutor, a man named Patrick Blackett, who would win a Nobel Prize in 1948, was forcing him to attend to the minutia of experimental physics, which he hated. He grew more and more emotionally unstable, and then, in an act so strange to, that to this day no one has properly made sense of it, Oppenheimer took some chemicals from the laboratory and tried to poison his tutor. 
Blackett, luckily, found out that something was amiss. The university was informed. Oppenheimer was called onto the carpet. And what happens next is as every bit as unbelievable as the crime itself. Here is how the incident is described in American Prometheus. Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin's biography is Oppen- of Oppenheimer, quote, After protracted negotiations, it was agreed that Robert would be put on probation and have regular lessons with a prominent Harley Street psychiatrist in London, end quote. On probation, here we have two very brilliant young students, each of whom runs into a problem that imperils his college career. Langan's mother has missed a deadline for his financial aid. Oppenheimer has tried to poison his tutor. To continue on, they are required to plead their cases to the authority. And what happens? Langan gets his scholarship taken away, and Oppenheimer gets sent to a psychiatrist. Oppenheimer and Langan might both be geniuses, but in other ways, they could not be more different. The story of Oppenheimer's appointment to to be scientific director of the Manhattan Project 20 years later is perhaps an even better example of this difference. The general in charge of the Manhattan Project was Leslie Groves, and he scoured the country, trying to find the right person to lead the atomic bomb effort. Oppenheimer, by rights, was a long shot. He was just 38 and junior to many of the people whom he would have to manage. He was a theorist, and this was a job that called for experimenters and engineers. His political affiliations were dodgy. He had all kinds of friends who were communists. Perhaps more striking, he had never had any administrative experience. One of Oppenheimer's friends later said, quote, He was a very impractical fellow. He walked about with scuffed shoes and a funny hat. And, more importantly, he didn't know anything about equipment. He couldn't run a hamburger stand. End quote. Oh, and by the way, in graduate school, he tried to kill his tutor. This was the resume of the man who was trying out for what might be said, without exaggeration, one of the most important jobs in the 20th century. And what happened? The same thing that happened 20 years earlier at Cambridge. He got the rest of the world to see things his way. Here are Bird and Sherwin again. Quote, Oppenheimer understood that Groves guarded the entrance to the Manhattan Project, and he therefore turned on all his charm and brilliance. It was an irresistible performance. Groves was smitten. Groves later told a reporter, he's a genius, a real genius. Groves was an engineer by training with a graduate degree from MIT, and Oppenheimer's great insight was to appeal to that side of Groves. Oppenheimer was the first scientist Groves had met on his tour of potential candidates who grasped that building an atomic bomb required finding practical solutions to a variety of cross-disciplinary problems. Groves found himself nodding in agreement when Oppenheimer pitched the notion of a central laboratory devoted to this purpose, where, as he later testified, we could begin to come to grips with chemical, metallurgical, engineering, and ordinance problems that had so far received no consideration. Would Oppenheimer have lost his scholarship at Reed College like Langan did? Would he have been unable to convince his professors to move his classes to the afternoon? Of course not, and that's not because he was smarter than Chris Langan. It's because he possessed the kind of savvy that allowed him to get what he wanted from the world. Langan says, quote, They required that everyone take introductory calculus, uh, talking about Montana State, and I happened to get a guy who taught it in a very dry, very trivial way. I didn't understand why he was teaching it this way, so I asked him questions. 
I actually had to chase him down to his office, and I asked him, why are you teaching this way? Why do you consider this practice to be relevant to calculus? And this guy, this tall, lanky guy, always had sweat stains under his arms. He turned and looked at me and said, you know, there is something you should probably get straight. Some people just don't have the intellectual firepower to be mathematicians. End quote. There they are, the professor and the prodigy, and what the prodigy clearly wants is to be engaged, at long last, with a mind that loves mathematics as much as he does. But he fails. In fact, and this is the most heartbreaking part of all, he manages to have an entire conversation with his calculus professor without ever communicating the one fact most likely to appeal to a calculus professor. The professor never realizes that Chris Langan is good at calculus. Section 3. The particular skill that allows you to talk your way out of a murder rap or convince your professor to move you from the morning to an afternoon session is what the psychologist Robert Sternberg calls practical intelligence. To Sternberg, practical intelligence includes things like knowing what to say to whom, knowing when to say it, and knowing how to say it for maximum effect. It is procedural. It is about knowing how to do something without necessarily knowing why you know it or being able to explain it. It's practical in nature. That is, it's not knowledge for its own sake. It's knowledge that helps you read situations correctly and get what you want. And, critically, it is a kind of intelligence separate from the sort of analytical ability measured by IQ. To use the technical term, general intelligence and practical intelligence are orthogonal. The presence of one does not imply the presence of another. You can have lots of analytical intelligence and very little practical intelligence, or you can have lots of practical intelligence and not much analytical intelligence. Or, as in the lucky case of someone like Robert Oppenheimer, you can have lots of both. So where does something like practical intelligence come from? We know where analytical intelligence comes from. It's something, at least in part, that's in your genes. Chris Langan started talking at six months. He taught himself to read at three years of age. He was born smart. IQ is a measure, to some degree, of innate ability. But social savvy is knowledge. It's a set of skills that have to be learned. It has to come from somewhere, and the place where we seem to get these kinds of attitudes and skills is from our families. Perhaps the best explanation we have of this process comes from the sociologist Annette Laurel, who a few years ago conducted a fascinating study of a group of third graders. She picked both black and white students and children from both wealthy and poor homes, zeroing in, ultimately, on 12 families. Laureau and her team visited each family at least 20 times, for hours at a stretch. She and her assistant told their subjects to treat them like the family dog, and they followed them to church and to soccer games and to the doctor's appointments with a tape recorder in one hand and a notebook in the other. You might expect that if you spent such an extended period in 12 different households, what you would gather is 12 different ideas about how to raise children. There would be the strict parents and the lax parents and the hyper-involved parents and the mellow parents and so on. What Leroux found, however, is something much different. There were only two parenting philosophies, and they were divided almost perfectly along class lines. The wealthier parents raised their kids one way, and the poorer parents raised their kids another the wealthier parents were heavily involved in their children's free time, shuttling them from one activity to the next, quizzing them about their teachers and coaches and teammates. One of the well-off children Laro 
followed played on a basketball team, two soccer teams, a swim team, and a basketball team in the summer, as well as playing in an orchestra and taking piano lessons. That kind of intensive scheduling was almost entirely absent from the lives of the poor children. Play for them wasn't soccer practice twice a week. It was making up games outside with their siblings and other kids in the neighborhood. What a child did was considered by his or her parents as something separate from the adult world and not particularly consequential. One girl from a working-class family, Katie, sang in a choir after school, but she signed herself up for it and walked to choir practices on her own. Loreau writes, What Katie's mother doesn't do that is routine for middle-class mothers is view her daughter's interests in singing as a signal to look for other ways for her to help her develop that interest into a formal talent. Similarly, Katie's mother does not discuss Katie's interest in drama or express regret that she cannot afford to cultivate her daughter's talents. Instead, she frames Katie's skills and interests as character traits. Singing and acting are part of what makes Katie, Katie. She sees the shows her daughter puts on as cute and as a way for Katie to get attention. End quote. The middle class parents talked things through with their children, reasoning with them. They didn't just issue commands. They expected their children to talk back to them, to negotiate, to question adults in positions of authority. If their children were doing poorly at school, the wealthier parents challenged the teachers. They intervened on behalf of their kids. One child Leroux follows just misses qualifying for her gifted program. Her mother arranges for her to be retested privately, petitions the school, and gets her daughter admitted. The poor parents, by contrast, are intimidated by authority. They, they react passively and stay in the background. Leroux writes of one low-income parent, quote, At a parent-teacher conference, for example, Miss McAllister, who is a high school graduate, seems subdued. The gregarious and outgoing nature she displays at home is hidden in this setting. She sits hunched over in the chair, and she keeps her jacket zipped up. She is very quiet. When the teacher reports that Harold has not been turning in his homework, Miss McAllister clearly is flabbergasted, but all she says is, he did it at home. She does not follow up with the teacher or attempt to intervene on Harold's behalf. In her view, it is up to the teachers to manage her son's education. That is their job, not hers. End quote. Leroux calls the middle-class parenting style concerted cultivation. It is an attempt to actively foster and assess a child's talents, opinions, and skills. Poor parents tend to follow, by contrast, a strategy of accomplishment of natural growth. They see as their responsibility to care for their children, but to let them grow and develop on their own. Leroux stresses that one style isn't morally better than the other. The poorer children were, to her mind, often better behaved, less whiny, more creative in making use of their own time, and had a well-developed sense of independence. But, in practical terms, concerted cultivation has enormous advantages. The heavily scheduled middle-class child is exposed to a constantly shifting set of experiences. She learns teamwork and how to cope in highly structured settings. She is taught how to interact comfortably with adults and to speak up when she needs to. In Leroux's words, the middle-class children learn a sense of entitlement. That word, of course, has negative connotations these days, but Leroux means it in the best sense of the term. Quote, they acted as though they had a right to pursue their own individual preferences and to actively manage interactions in institutional settings. They appeared comfortable in those settings. They were open to sharing information and asking for attention. 
It was common practice among middle-class children to shift interactions to suit their preferences. They knew the rules. Even in fourth grade, middle-class children appeared to be acting on their own behalf to gain advantages. They made special requests of teachers and doctors to adjust procedures to accommodate their desires. End quote. By contrast, the working class and poor children were characterized by an emerging sense of distance, distrust, and constraint. They didn't know how to get their way or how to customize, using Leroux's wonderful term, customize whatever environment they were in for their best purposes. In one telling scene, Leroux describes a visit to the doctor by Alex Williams, a nine-year-old boy, and his mother, Christina. The Williamses are wealthy professionals. Christina says in the car on the way to the doctor, quote, Alex, you should be thinking of questions you might want to ask the doctor. You can ask him anything you want. Don't be shy. You should ask anything. End quote. Alex thinks for a minute, then says, quote, I have some bumps under my arms from my deodorant. To which Christina replies, really? You mean from your new deodorant? And Alex replies, yes. Christina says, well, then you should ask the doctor. End quote. Alex's mother, Leroux writes, is teaching that he has the right to speak up, that even though he's going to be in a room with an older person and authority figure, it's perfectly all right for him to assert himself. They meet the doctor, a genial man in his early 40s. He tells Alex that he is in the 95th percentile in height. Alex then interrupts. What, I'm in the what? Doctor says, it means that you're taller than more than 95 out of 100 young men when they're uh, 10 years old. Alex says, I'm not 10. Doctor says, well, they graft you at 10. You're nine years and 10 months. They, they usually take the closest year to that graph. Look at how easily Alex interrupted the doctor. I'm not 10. That's entitlement. His mother permits the casual incivility because she wants him to learn to assert himself with positions or with people in positions of authority. Back to the conversation. The doctor turns to Alex and says, well, now the most important question, do you have any questions that you want to ask me before I do your physical? Alex says, um, only one. I've been getting some bumps on, on my arms right around here, indicating the underarm. Doctor says, underneath? Alex replies, yeah. Doctor says, okay, I'll have to take a look at those when I come in closer to do the checkup, and I'll see what they are and what I can do. Do they hurt or itch? Alex, no, they're just there. Doctor concludes, okay, I will take a look at those bumps for you. This kind of interaction simply doesn't happen with lower-class children, Leroux says. They would be quiet and submissive, with eyes turned away. Alex takes charge of the moment. Quote, in remembering to raise the question he prepared in advance, he gains the doctor's full attention and focuses it on an issue of his choosing, Leroux writes. In doing so, he successfully shifts the balance of power away from the adults and toward himself. The transition goes smoothly. Alex is used to being treated with respect. He is seen as special and as a person worthy of adult attention and interest. These are the key characteristics of the strategy of concerted cultivation. Alex is not showing off during his checkup. He is behaving much as he does with his parents. He reasons, negotiates, and jokes with equal ease. End quote. It is important to understand where the particular mastery of that moment comes from. It's not genetic. Alex Williams didn't inherit the skills to interact with authority figures from his parents and grandparents the way he inherited the color of his eyes. Nor is it racial. It's not a practice specific to either white or black folks. As it turns out, 
Alex Williams is black and Katie Brindle is white. It's a cultural advantage. Alex has those skills because over the course of his young life, his mother and father, in the manner of educated families, have painstakingly taught them to him, nudging and prodding and encouraging and showing him the rules of the game, right down to that little rehearsal in the car on the way to the doctor's office. When we talk about the advantages of class, LaRoe argues, this is in large part what we mean. Alex Williams is better off than Katie Brindle because he's wealthier and because he goes to, his, goes to a better school, but also because, and perhaps this is even more critical, the sense of entitlement that he has been taught is an attitude perfectly suited to succeeding in the modern world. Section 4. This is the advantage that Oppenheimer had and that Chris Langan lacked. Oppenheimer was raised in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in Manhattan, the son of an artist and a successful garment manufacturer. His childhood was the embodiment of concerted cultivation. On weekends, the Oppenheimers would go driving in the countryside in a chauffeur-driven Packard. Summers, he would be taken to Europe to see his grandfather. He attended the Ethical Culture School on Central Park West, perhaps the most progressive school in the nation, where, his biographers write, students were infused with the notion that they were being groomed to reform the world. When his math teacher realized he was bored, she sent him off to do independent work. As a child, Oppenheimer was passionate about rock collecting. At the age of 12, he began corresponding with local geologists about rock formations that he had seen in Central Park, and he so impressed them that they invited him to give a lecture before the New York Mineralo Mineralogical Club. Whew. As Sherwin and Bird write, Oppenheimer's parents responded to their son's hobby in an almost textbook example of concerted cultivation. Quote, Dreading the thought of having to talk to an audience of adults, Robert begged his family to explain that they had invited a 12-year-old. Greatly amused, Julius encouraged his son to accept this honor. On the designated evening, Robert showed up at the club with his parents, who proudly introduced their son as J. Robert Oppenheimer. The startled audience of geologists and amateur rock collectors burst out laughing when he stepped up to the podium. A wooden box had to be found for him to stand on so that the audience could see more than the shock of his wiry black hair sticking up above the lectern. Shy and awkward, Robert nevertheless read his prepared remarks and was given a hearty round of applause. End quote. Is it any wonder that Oppenheimer handled the challenges of his life so brilliantly? If you are someone whose father has made his way up in the business world, then you've seen, firsthand, what it takes to negotiate your way out of a tight spot. If you're someone who was sent to the Ethical Culture School, then you aren't going to be intimidated by a row of Cambridge dons arrayed in judgment against you. If you studied physics at Harvard, then you know how to talk to an army general who did engineering just down the road at MIT. Chris Langan, by contrast, had only the bleakness of Bozeman and a home dominated by an angry, drunken stepfather. Mark says, quote, Jack Langan did this to all of us. We all have a true resentment of authority, end quote. That was the lesson Langan learned from his childhood, distrust authority and be independent. He never had a parent teach him on the way to the doctor how to speak up for himself or how to reason and negotiate with those in positions of authority. He didn't learn entitlement. He learned constraint. It may seem like a small thing, but it was a crippling handicap in navigating the world beyond Bozeman. Mark went on, quote, I couldn't get any financial aid either. We just had zero knowledge, less than zero knowledge of the process, how to apply the forms, the checkbooks, 
It was not our environment. If Christopher had been born into a wealthy family, if he was the son of a doctor who was well-connected in some major market, I guarantee you he would have been one of those guys you read about knocking back PhDs at 17. It's the culture you find yourself in that determines that. The issue with Chris is that he was always too bored to actually sit there and listen to his teachers. If someone had recognized his intelligence, and if he was from a family where there was some kind of value on education, they would have made sure that he wasn't born or bored. <laughs> End quote. Section 5. When the termites were in their adulthood, looking back at the last chapter, Terman looked at the records of 730 of the men and divided them into three groups. 150, the top 20%, fell into what Terman called the A group. They were the true success stories, the stars, the lawyers, physicians, engineers, and academics. 90% of the A group graduated from college and among them had earned 98 graduate degrees. The middle 60% were the B group, those who were doing satisfactorily. The bottom 150 were the Cs, the ones who Terman judged to have the, done the least with their superior mental ability. They were the postal workers and the struggling bookkeepers, and the men lying on their couches at home without any job at all. One third of the C's were college dropouts. A quarter only had a high school diploma, and all 150 of the C's, each one of whom, at one point in his life, had been dubbed a genius, had together earned a total of eight graduate degrees. What was the difference between the A's and the C's? Terman ran through every conceivable explanation. He looked at their physical and mental health, their masculinity-femininity scores, and their hobbies and vocational interests. He compared the ages when they started walking and talking and what their precise IQ scores were in elementary and high school. In the end, only one thing mattered, family background. The A's overwhelmingly came from the middle and the upper class. Their homes were filled with books. Half the fathers of the A group had a college degree or beyond, and, and, and this at a time when a university education was a rarity. The C's, on the other hand, were from the other side of the tracks. Almost a third of them had a parent who had dropped out of school before the eighth, gra eighth grade. At one point, Terman and his field workers go and visit everyone from the A and C groups and rate their personalities and manner. What they found is everything you would expect to find if you were comparing children raised in an atmosphere of concerted cultivation with children raised in an atmosphere of natural growth. The A's were judged to be much more alert, poised, attractive, and well-dressed. In fact, the scores on those four dimensions are so different as to make you think you are looking at two different species of humans. You aren't, of course, but you're simply seeing the difference between those schooled by their families to present their best face to the world and those denied that experience. The Terminal results are deeply distressing. Let's not forget how highly gifted the C group was. If you had met them at five or six years of age, you would have been overwhelmed by their curiosity and mental agility and sparkle. They were true outliers. The plain truth of the Terman study, however, is that in the end, almost none of the genius children from the lowest social and economic classes ended up making a name for themselves. What did the C's lack, though? Not something expensive or impossible to find. Not something encoded in DNA or hardwired into the circuits of their brain. They lacked something that could have been given to them if we'd only known they needed it. A community around them that prepared them properly for the world. The C's were squandered talent, but they didn't need to be. Section 6. 
Today, Chris Langan lives in rural Missouri on a horse farm. He moved there a few years ago after he got married. He is in his 50s but looks many years younger. He has the build of a linebacker, thick through the chest with enormous biceps. His hair is combed straight back from his forehead. He has a neat graying mustache and aviator-style glasses. If you look into his eyes, you can see the intelligence burning behind them. Quote, a typical day is, I get up and make coffee. I go in and sit in front of the computer and begin working on whatever I was working on the night before. I found if I go to bed with a question on my mind, all I have to do is concentrate on the question before I go to sleep, and I virtually always have the answer in the morning. Sometimes I realize what the answer is because I dreamt the answer, and I can remember it. Other times I just feel the answer, and I start typing and the answer emerges onto the page." End quote. He had just been reading the work of the linguist Noam Chomsky. There were piles of books in his study. He ordered books from the library all the time. Quote, I always feel that the closer you get to the original sources, the better off you are. End quote. Langan seemed content. He had farm animals to take care of and books to read and a wife he loved. It was a much better life than being a bouncer. He goes on, quote, I don't think that there is anyone smarter than me out there. I have never met anybody like me or never have seen an indication that there is somebody who actually has better powers of comprehension. Never seen it, and I don't think I am going to. I could. My mind is open to the possibility. If anyone should challenge me, oh, I think I am smarter than you are, I think I could have them, end quote. What he said sounded boastful, but it wasn't really. It was the opposite, a touch defensive. He'd been working for decades now on a, on a project of enormous sophistication, but almost none of what he had done had ever been published, much less read by the physicists and philosophers and mathematicians who might be able to judge its value. Here he was, a man with a one-in-a-million mind, and he had yet to have any impact on the world. He wasn't holding forth at academic conferences. He wasn't leading a graduate seminar at some prestigious university. He was living on a slightly tumble-down house farm in northern Missouri, sitting on the back porch in jeans and a cut-off t-shirt. He knew how it looked. It was the great paradox of Chris Langan's genius. Quote, I have not pursued mainstream publishers as hard as I should have. Going around, querying publishers, trying to find an agent. I haven't done it, and I am not interested in doing it. End quote. It was an admission of defeat. Every experience he had had outside of his own mind had ended in frustration. He knew he, knew he needed to do a better job of navigating the world, but he didn't know how. He couldn't even talk to his calculus teacher, for goodness sake. These were things that others with lesser minds could master easily. But that's because those others had had help along the way, and Chris Langan never had. It wasn't an excuse. It was a fact. He'd had to make his way alone. And no one, not rock stars, not professional athletes, not software billionaires, and not even geniuses, ever makes it alone. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.